1 John chapter 4 is a discourse on love. John is certainly in his element when he discusses love. He uses this beautiful phrase in verse 8, God is love. This discourse begins in earnest, uh, starting in verse 7 and extends to the end of the chapter. And we're treated to beautiful language such as God is love in verse 8. And in verse 10, we read again about his son being sent to be a propitiation for our sins. And then we have this beautiful phrase in verse 18, perfect love casteth out fear, which we can appreciate in isolation or as a standalone teaching, but which we can also appreciate as an extension of John's idea that he's previously introduced that we can stand with confidence in the presence of God when he appears again if we are like him. This chapter is something else as well. It is a response to false teachings and false philosophies that were pervasive during John's time that were um, teaching that God was disembodied, that his divinity was a function of him being um, dissociated entirely from the flesh. And, and this was docetism, that, that was that teaching, that's the word we use for it now. And there is a, a kind of an insidious mixture of truth and error in that. And we, we as, as mentioned previously in, in 1 John chapter 2, we know that uh, Lucifer wants to make all men miserable like his disembodied self. And so it's no surprise that he is teaching this false doctrine through his false Christs, those who have the spirit of Antichrist, as it says in verse 3, that he would be teaching that God is disembodied. This is refuted most clearly in Restoration Scripture in Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 20, verse 22. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. So in the first six chapters, or excuse me, the first six verses of chapter 4, John is addressing this. And when he does use this phrase, God is love, in verse 8, it's to me it's as though he is saying i'll tell you what god is he is love when you're talking about whether he is body or whether he is spirit god is love let me tell you about that and again that's when john is really in his element is when he's teaching that with such clarity and of course to the point of god having a body we can return to first john chapter 1 when John says that he had handled him. Well, verses uh, 1 through 6 contain two tests that can be applied to those who profess to be believers of Christ and to test whether they actually have the spirit of Antichrist. The first test is expressed in the first three verses, which we'll go through, and that is whether these who profess such a thing 
do confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And that says that in verse 2. The second test is if those who profess such things are actually able to hear the words of God, that they recognize his voice. Moving now then to verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Paul was certainly contending with a similar problem, and we find evidence of this in Colossians um, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. You can tell the, that, that he is dealing with the same issue. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, verse 2 then, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. So that's the first test. You, you have to accept, as Paul said in Colossians, that he manifests the Godhead bodily, that he came in the flesh and that is of flesh, uh, uh, not the mortal natural flesh, but that he is embodied, as uh, section 130 taught us. And that and this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So John is saying it, it was said that it would be like this during this time, that there would be false prophets and false Christs. I want to comment for just a moment on this concept of Antichrist. I think that um, there are many versions of this. I've talked about this before in a slightly different way, but I want to talk in this case about something like a continuum, where on one end of the continuum, there, there, there are teachings <coughs> that would be considered Antichrist or having the spirit of Antichrist. That, that say that there shall be no Christ of any kind. I, I think uh, was it may have been Nehor, or it may have been Sherem, or it may have been Korahor. I don't remember which one, but those are the three major Antichrist stories in the Book of Mormon, who said that it is not reasonable that there should be a Christ. So, so that's the, the extreme end of the continuum, is to say, that there, there is no need for a Messiah at all. There is no theology that requires a Messiah or that requires a Christ figure. All right, then on the extreme other end of the continuum, there would be an admission that there most certainly does need to be a Christ. And in fact, that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. But on that end of the continuum, his doctrine gets polluted so that we're not fully able to access his power. So we find professors of anti-Christ or anti-Christian beliefs all along this continuum. Um, and, and we could cite several other examples. For example, there's the belief that there most certainly is a theology that requires a Christ. 
But in that theology, it wasn't Jesus of Nazareth. We're still waiting for that Messiah to appear. So that would be another version. Um, or another version would be that Je Jesus did live, but he was not the promised Messiah. Now we get to the second test, going from verses 4 to 6. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we're comparing those who are in you, um, or he, God, having God in you through his Holy Spirit, than the influences of the world. And of course, this, this greater that John speaks of is is by a stunning order of magnitude, which is something really worth pondering. Verse 5, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Alright, so the, those who have the spirit of Antichrist, they speak the language of the world, and, and the world hears them back, and so they get their reward from that. But we, says John in verse 6, are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. That, that reminds you a bit of, of, of Nephi at the very end of Second Nephi, where he says, if you don't believe in my words, believe in Christ. But if you believe in Christ, you're going to believe my words. So he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we learn in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verse 7, for example, that the elect hear my voice and harden not their hearts. So that's a critical test. If, if um, you are able to hear his voice, then hereby know we, says John. Now we come into this section, which is, um, uh, could, be, could be summarized either by the statement, love one another, which John uses in verse 7, or God is love, which he uses in verse 8. So verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So love is God's language. Love is God's medium. Love is God's element. Love is God's milieu. If we're to know God, then we are to love Verse 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. If you were to read this verse, uh, and you were to wonder who had written it, so you only had this verse, this was the only fragment of the writings of First John that were available, and you read that, who would you think it was that wrote that? <laughs> would you not think, Oh, this has got to be John. Of course you would. It sounds just like what he said in John chapter 3 um, when he talked about God so loving the world and sending his only begotten son. It also sounds a bit like John 15 when he talks about um, loving one another. Now verse 10, um, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This indicates order, and this is something that I spoke of uh, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 2, where that word propitiation is used there too. 
but it indicates an order because it says here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So he loved us first. He made the actuating gesture in this instance by sacrificing his son. And in a way, the father became the sacrificing party instead of us being the sacrificing party as we, in, under the Mosaic law, approach the altar with a sacrificial lamb. God the Father became the sacrificing party, offering him, offering him as a propitiation for our sins. And that's why I think it says, he loved us, or, or it could maybe say, he loved us first. So we can work in faith, um, building on that expression of love, because that is the initiating act of love, and so our love towards him and towards others can flow from that original initiating act of love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So that is the only appropriate conclusion you can come to once you learn about this incredible love that's discussed in verse 10. I don't want to stop here. Here then, when we're consumed with such love, is how we should be disposed to others. Elder Holland said this of Jesus Christ, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, rebuking hypocrisy, pleading for faith. This was Christ showing us the way of the Father, he who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering and full of goodness. That's out of Lectures on Faith. Then Elder Holland says, in his life and especially in his death, Christ was declaring, this is God's compassion I am showing you, as well as that of my own. And in the spirit of the holy apostleship, I say, as did one who held this office anciently, herein then is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another, and to love him forever, I pray. Then we can get tripped up as we're talking about this glorious and gracious love in verse 12, because it, it, it rubs us wrong when we, say, when we read that no man hath seen God at any time, uh, because clearly John had seen God, and not just in mortality, but had seen him as a resurrected Lord, as he makes very clear in 1 John 1. And so the Joseph Smith translation helps us by saying that no man hath seen God at any time except them who believe. There's lots more that we could explore with that um, uh, when it comes to the issue of mortals being able to see God. We, we learn more about that in Acts. We certainly learn about it in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, which I'll read just briefly. Verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. And of course, Joseph Smith saw God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. So verse 13 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. So this is similar language to the end of John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and 1 John chapter 2, 
where we learn that having the gift of the Holy Ghost with us and functioning in us and abiding in us is the ultimate indicator for whether we are on track for that moment when he appears again and whether we'll be able to see him in confidence and be like him again. So verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. There's that beautiful phrase, Savior of the world. Verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in God, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. All sounds similar to the intercessory prayer and those teachings that we get in the in the late teens of John, the Gospel of John. Verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And, and there it is. The same thing as by confidence waxing strong in the presence of God, or uh, being able to approach the throne uh, boldly. Because as he is, so are we in this world. And so that is kind of really the context of this beautiful verse uh, in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out all fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So uh, fear is antithetical to faith, much like, like light and darkness. Uh, having faith at the same time that one has fear is, is almost impossible. And that's true, it seems, with love as well, that love can cast out fear. Uh, th there is a, an account from the life of James E. Talmadge that I'd like to read. It's very moving when you consider Elder Talmadge's love towards the Savior Jesus Christ as it was manifest in his book, Jesus the Christ. That, that work that Elder Talmadge did is an incredible and uh, in so many ways an incredible and scholarly um, in many ways um, a piece of evidence of, of, his, of his love of, uh, for the Savior. But have you ever thought about how Elder Talmadge lived from day to day could it be that Elder Talmadge himself uh, did reflect the love of Jesus Christ in his day-to-day -day actions? Uh, this, this is a story that helps you see that indeed he did. Um, this is uh, written actually by Elder Joseph B. Worthlin in a general conference where he tells the story. He says, Elder James E. Talmadge, a man who is remembered for his doctrinal teachings, showed great kindness to a neighbor family in distress. They were complete strangers to him. Before he was an apostle as a young father, he became aware of great suffering at a neighbor's home whose large family was stricken with the dreaded diphtheria. I, I take that to mean something when Elder Worthland points out that this incident happened before Elder Talmadge was an apostle and it's while he was a young father. Think about the age of his kids. And, and about his contact with these, this family with diphtheria and what that could mean for his young family. Then Elder Worthland says, He did not care that they were not members of the church. His kindness and charity moved him to act. 
The Relief Society was desperately trying to find people to help, but no one would because of the contagious nature of the disease. When he arrived, James found one toddler already dead and two others who were in agony from the disease. He immediately went to work, cleaning the untidy house, preparing the young body for burial, cleaning and providing for the other sick children, spending the entire day doing so. He came back the next morning to find that one more of the children had died during the night. A third child was still suffering terribly. He wrote in his journal, she clung to my neck, oft times coughing germs on my face and clothing, yet I could not put her from me. During the half hour immediately preceding her death, I walked the floor with this little creature in my arms. She died in agony at 10 a.m. The three children had all departed within the space of 24 hours. He then assisted the family with the burial arrangements and spoke at their graveside services. This he did all for a family of strangers. What a great example of Christ-like kindness. I marvel at that. The order of things is that that's the kind of person that Elder Talmadge was. And he was so um, impressed with the spirit of Jesus Christ and his ministry towards others that he was compelled to learn about him so deeply and write about him so comprehensively. Uh, and so it's no surprise that Elder Talmadge reflected this this concept in verse 16 again where it says oh excuse me that's not where it is I uh, where it says that if, if you have the love of God here it is um, in verse 11 then we ought also to love one another again here's this beautiful phrase and I, I think it would it would be nice to attach this phrase in verse 19 uh, to verse 10 so you can kind of think of, that, think of it that way when it says we love him because he first loved us verse 20 if a man say here, here goes John again in, in distinguishing between what a man says and what a man does if a man say I love God and hateth his brother he is a liar for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. I think John knew that we really tend to act out our true loves. Um, our actions tend to betray our tongues. Uh, it was Luke who said that uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, um, suggesting that, that, that what you hold as a treasure is, 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 a, is a connection to the desires and intents of your heart that you can't dissociate even if you try to act differently. And it's the same with words. Uh, ultimately, we do act out our loves no matter what we profess verbally. And I think James, or excuse me, I think John, would most certainly approve of the story of James Talmadge and uh, would approve of anyone in their efforts to reflect the, the love of God that they feel and the admiration of Jesus Christ that they feel in their uh, treatment of others.